In the briny humidity of Jersey heat, the small southern towns of Shellpile, Port Norris, and Bivalve became the bustling epicenter of many black workers, and they were all there to do one thing, shock. So much so that from the late 1800s to the 1940s, they were monikered the oyster capital of the world. With Cumberland County of New Jersey's community of Port Norris, it was one of the wealthiest towns with multiple millionaires, oyster planters, that were living in the beautiful Victorian homes that lined the streets. But the success of these towns and the oyster industry itself would be nothing without the experience, the enthusiasm, and the diligence of its workers, many of whom were African-American. I'm Leslie Scharenbeck, you're listening to Heirloom Historical, and on today's episode, we're learning about the importance of the Black Oystermen of South Jersey. This is our last installment of African American History as we close out February. And since this year's theme was all about the culture and artistry that the black community has developed here in America over the past 400 or so years, I thought I would talk about the importance of the folk artistry of foodways, something that we often tend to forget, and the cultural heritage and nuances that would have been passed down from generation to generation as a part of this South Jersey community. Now, only a ship's sail away from South Jersey was the Chesapeake region, an area that harbored enslaved bodies since the late 1600s. As part of their enslavement, many blacks of the Chesapeake region became experts in the oyster industry, planting, shucking, and being part of the sailing crew. But the salty seas of the Chesapeake were limiting. Black codes after the Civil War made it illegal for blacks to own or operate their own fishing vessels without a white man on board. And quite frankly, the ecological knowledge that the black population had was often thought to be useless because oysters were only suitable as a poor man's diet. But nonetheless, the art of shucking was passed down from one generation to the next. And it wasn't until 1825 that a black man and also abolitionist Thomas Downing would open an oyster saloon in the middle of the financial district in New York City that the oyster would then become popular. These oyster bars, dives, if you will, since you would have to dive down the stairs to get to them, all changed when Downing began allowing women and children, perish the thought, into his bar. And he made it his job to sell the best oysters from the day's catch. With the oysters' elite status secured, a pathway to freedom was procured for African Americans that were enslaved or victimized of the Black Codes along the Atlantic coast. It was no surprise then that the Underground Railroad, the escape route to Canada, would cross paths with a few oyster beds along the Jersey coastline on the way to safety. So by the early 1900s, the oyster industry had become the linchpin of the economy in South Jersey, with black workers providing the bulk of the intensive labor. These people would travel up from the Chesapeake when the crabbing season was over, and many of them ended up staying for generations. These migrant hands would work day in and day out throughout the summer 
At times, there would be between 1,000 and 2,500 people living in that small coastal town of Shellpile. Shellpile had only a few main streets, with wooden barracks erected on stilts over the salt marshes. They were rudimentary makeshift homes with no insulation. Two-storied high apartments, known as Berry Row, as they were owned by Miller Berry, lined both sides of the streets. One grocery store, owned by Ted Reeves, that was in operation, had everything that you would need. There was, of course, a church, a school, and shucking houses. The shucking house held between 75 to 80 shuckers at one time. Men and eventually women would work 12-hour shifts from 6 to 6 or 5 to 5. You would have to stand on a shucking box, waiting for oysters to be placed by a skimmer. This was a piecemeal work, and you were paid by the gallon. Typically, uh, blacks were paid 20 cents for a gallon of oysters, and a good shucker could get between 35 and 40 gallons a day. What it must have been like to have been in that house, not only the smell, which was probably atrocious, but the sound. You see, these shuckers developed very unique rhythms, a short, sharp beat as they broke and opened each shell. Many would sway and move in time with their knives, tossing the shells to the bottom of the workhouse floor. Often, they would hum an old African spiritual to pass the time away. Steal away and won't it be wonderful were two favorites that helped to ease the monotony of the shuck. Everywhere you turned, there would be the discarded shells of oysters piled up to make the roadways. Flies and seagulls would abound. Even now, I wouldn't recommend a trip to Shell Pile in the summer unless you can handle what the salt marshes can dish out. The stench still is horrific. But somehow, out of those broken half shells, a community emerged up until the 1940s when an oyster blight would take down the industry. During the school year, children went to the Brown School, an African-American school that was built for the community of Shell Pile. It housed students from kindergarten to the seventh grade. It was a simple two-room schoolhouse with two teachers. The summertime would lend itself, as it always does, to recreational activities and summer work. There was a Port Norris Oyster League baseball team. Salt hay fields would provide a job for teenagers from April to June, earning $4 a day for harvesting. Children would play along the banks and in the Maurice River, cooling themselves off from a hot summer day, jumping from oyster float to oyster float. Fred Tarleton, with his homemade eel pots, known by the locals as the eel man, had cornered the market for eel meat, which apparently then, when fried, tastes just like chicken. And at night, with pockets full of cash from the day's worth of shucking, speakeasies and gambling rings would abound, if you knew just where to look. And in that one small square mile, Shell Pile, for a short period of time, flourished. These black men and women worked tirelessly to not only shuck those oysters, but form a community to provide their children with schooling and perhaps the chance at something they themselves would have never experienced without the income generated from their skillful labor. They survived a starve out in 1933 when the depression hit and the citizens of Camden had rushed to the aid of Shell Pile in providing food, 
medicine, and other sustenance. And they became very famously the documented photographs of a 1939 Smithsonian exhibit where you can look, I'll link it in the description below, to see exactly just what Oyster Shuckers at Work looked like. Thanks for listening to Heirloom Historical. I'm your host, Leslie Scherenbeck. As always, we love to hear from our listeners, so feel free to email us at heirloomhistorical at gmail.com. Stay tuned next week as we celebrate Women's History Month with a feature of profiles from some awesome women in history. Until next time.